0: There's a well-known actor. Most of you know his name as Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin Phoenix has been in a lot of movies, and one of them is my favorite. It is the movie Gladiator. And a lot of people don't know that Joaquin Phoenix and his family were actually involved in a cult and a false teacher called the Children of God. The man who led this cult is David Berg. David Berg actually came out of evangelicalism. But if you read about his life, he was a real Pervert. And Joaquin Phoenix, his brother River, and the family got involved in this cult, and it ended up doing a lot of damage. I think we all agree that in our day and time, there is a proliferation of false teachers. There's a lot of people that are involved in cults and false religious systems. And the Bible is replete with warnings that you and I are to be on guard and we're to be careful when it comes to spiritual predators within the church. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. So I invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 2, and we are looking specifically at verses 18 through 29 as we look at how to avoid being led astray by false teachers. Now, remember, the Apostle John gave a purpose statement as to why he wrote this particular epistle. In fact, there are four or five reasons But one of the reasons he gives is in this section that we're going to study this morning. And if you notice verse 26, here's what he says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. And so John gives one of the reasons why he wrote this epistle is because he knew that false teachers were trying to prey upon people in the early church. And you know, to some degree, they were at a disadvantage unlike us because they didn't have... The whole New Testament like you and I have the whole New Testament. And so John was writing as a good shepherd because he didn't want these believers located in Asia Minor or Ephesus to be led astray by false teachers. And that's exactly what false teachers traffic in. They deceive. They engage in deception. It's kind of like fishing. I like to fish. And one of the things you do when you fish is you bait the hook, and the fish thinks it's getting a delicious meal when in the end, it's gonna get hooked. I remember in Miami, Florida, where I grew up, we have an intricate set of canal systems that run throughout South Florida, and I would go as a young kid to the canals and we would fish, and there was this one particular fish, it was called an Oscar, and they were difficult to catch. And there was a huge one sitting there in about three foot of water, and I remember taking my hook and I put a little piece of bread on the tip of it. And I sat there very patiently, and I dangled that bread in front of the Oscar, up and down, up and down. It took like five or 10 minutes, and I kept going up and down in front of the Oscar, and finally he would go, and then he'd back off. do like this. Finally, he got so fed up with me tempting him, boom, I hooked him, and I got him. And that's exactly what false teachers try to do. And so what John is going to do here in this section of Scripture is he's going to give us five ways that you and I as Christians can avoid being victimized by false teachers. Unless you think that Christians are above falling into error, think again, because the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians warns that immature Christians can get caught up in every wind of doctrine because they're not mature in their faith in Jesus Christ. And so let's look at the first way that you and I can avoid being victimized by false teachers. First, we must be alert to false teachers. We must be alert to their presence. Notice what he says in verse 18. He says, children, it is the last hour. Now, what is the last hour? Some people say it's the last days. Those terms are used interchangeably. But to put it simply, the last hour refers to that time period between Christ's first coming and His second coming. They believed that Jesus' is coming was right around the corner in John's day, and so the next event on God's timetable is the rapture of the church. The last days were inaugurated when Jesus Christ came at His first coming, and it will be consummated when Jesus Christ comes again. And so, he says we're in the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, uh, that was circulated among the churches of that time, that there was coming this world ruler who you and I talked about in the book of Revelation. And the word antichrist means someone who replaces Christ and someone who opposes Christ. And so the early church had this anticipation that there was this coming one world ruler. But notice what John says here. Even now, though, many antichrists, which would be false teachers, this would be the spirit of antichrist. There is the world ruler that is coming, but there is this spirit of antichrist. There is These false teachers, he says, that are going to appear on the scene, he says, from this we know that it is the last hour. And so John is implying here a sense of alertness, a sense of urgency. He's saying, you Christians know that there is coming this one world ruler, this one antichrist, but I want you to know that right now we know we're in the last hour. We know that Jesus' coming is right around the corner. Why? Because there are many antichrists that are going to appear throughout church history. Many false teachers. It is the spirit of antichrist. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul warns Timothy, he says, In the latter days, there will be doctrines of demons, and they will be proliferated through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared by a hot iron. In other words, when demons want to disseminate their lies and their doctrines, who do they use? They use false teachers. And so John says, we know we're in the last days because there is going to be a bevy of false teachers that are going to arrive on the scene. And the implication is, you and I need to be alert, we need to be aware. You know, we talk about an amber alert. You've seen them on your phone, you've seen as you've been driving on the expressway a silver alert, someone who's older, who's in their car, and they may be delirious, What John here is doing is not giving us an amber alert or a silver alert, he's giving us a false teacher alert. One of the problems that we deal with in our day and time is online predators. In fact, before we had the internet, and sometimes I think the internet is a blessing, but it is also a scourge in our society because it's been used to advance so much evil. And you remember when you're, if you had children when they were younger, you would warn them and make them alert concerning predators. You would tell them if someone comes up to you and says, hey, your mom and dad asked me to pick you up at school, don't listen to them. See, we would put our children on the alert. Well, now it's gone to a much higher level because of the internet. I was reading in North Carolina about this girl. Her name was Savannah Childress. She was 18 years old or maybe 16 years old, and this predator online that she began to talk to was in his 30s. And he ended up alluring her, and he ended up abducting her. Thankfully, they were able to catch the predator, and what they did was they sent out a warning to all of the school systems to warn them about online predators. And that's exactly what John is doing here. He's warning the believers, saying, look, I know there's going to be a coming Antichrist, but I want you to be alert to the fact that there are going to be many false teachers that are going to arrive on the scene, and they're going to try to lead you astray from Jesus Christ. Now, here's the question. If we're to be alert of false teachers, what are the characteristics of these false teachers? Kind of like the milk carton. Do you remember back in the day in the 60s, 70s, maybe early 80s, when they had these milk cartons, what they would do is on the back, they would put a profile of a missing child and then they would list the characteristics of that child, blue eyes, brown eyes, this is their height, this is where they live. Well, what John is doing here, and the Bible is doing, is it gives us a list of characteristics so that you and I can be alert to false teachers. Now, the list I'm about to give you, we don't have time to unpack, but if you're gonna be alert to false teachers, here are some of the characteristics of false teachers and cults. And by the way, they estimate there are about 700 cults around the world. I want you to think about that. 700 cults, and they estimate 20 million people or more are involved in these cults. So what are the characteristics? We see these not only from Scripture, but also sociologically. Let me read them to you. If you're going to be alert, you need to understand that false teachers in the cults, they introduce extra-biblical revelation or they twist the Bible. That's one characteristic. Another one is they possess a distorted view typically of God and Christ. Number three, they deny salvation by grace through faith alone. Number four, they are authoritarian and they are controlling. Number five, they are exclusive. It's us four, no more, shut the door. They are dogmatic, they are closed-minded. They promote isolationism. They are antagonistic. They are legalistic. They can be sexually perverted. David Berg was that way. David Koresh. They are greedy. They can be physically abusive. They are intolerant of others. They are deceptive, and they are aggressive at proselytizing. Those are the characteristics typically, and you could take all of those, and you can find scriptural support for them as well as sociological observations. And so, if we're going to be alert we got to know those are the characteristics of false teachers, cults, and religious systems. And listen, Christians are not immune to this. In my church in New Jersey, there was a gentleman that was involved in a small group. He led the small group, and he was grounded scripturally. But unfortunately, he got caught up in a false doctrine, and it's called preterism. I don't have time to go into all the details, but he embraced full preterism, which basically said this. All of Revelation was fulfilled in 70 A.D. when Rome destroyed the temple, and Jesus came back in 70 A.D. There is no second coming that we have to look forward to, and so him and I began to discuss this, and by the way, they believe there's no literal physical resurrection of the believer. And so I had to deal with him and remove him from that role after dialoguing with him. And you know what? To this day, it's been five or six years later, he's not gone to church, and he's been out of the fellowship because he's gotten hung up on this one doctrine, and he can't let go of it. You see, Christians can fall into error too, so we need to be alert. The second thing is, if you're going to overcome false teachers, you must be a genuine believer. Notice, if you will, verse 9 or 19, he says this, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. In other words, they were not genuine believers. These false teachers that were identifying with the church in John's day, he says they left. And the reason why is they were not really of us. They weren't genuine believers. For if they had been of us, they would have remain with us. They would have followed apostolic doctrine, apostolic leadership, but he says they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. In other words, they realized that they were not saved. And so what John is saying here is make sure you're a genuine believer. These people that were identifying with the churches to whom John was writing to, many of them superficially attached to the church, In fact, this is what makes it insidious and pernicious. It is because when people identify with the church, and ostensibly they appear to be Christian, they seem to be Christian, they use Christianese language, and they talk that way, that's where the deception comes from. See, we know false religious systems out there, Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Taoism, and all the isms and spasms. We know about those groups. We can identify them. But the ones that are very, very dangerous are the ones that infiltrate the church. That's why in Jude, verse 12, he says, they are hidden reefs at your love feasts. The early church would have love feasts, and they would celebrate. It's like a potluck dinner. They would get together, and they would eat, and then they would celebrate communion, the Lord's cup. Well, he says in verse 12 of Jude that these false teachers, they are hidden reefs at your love feasts. They would go to the love feasts. They would play the role as if they were genuine believers, but you know what a hidden reef is. In fact, there was a cruise ship recently in Indonesia that was going on the water, and it actually hit this reef, and it destroyed the ship, and it actually destroyed the reef itself. You see, a hidden reef you don't see. It's very clandestine, and what happens is it destroys the boat. And that's exactly what he says about these false teachers. They went out from us but they were really not genuine believers. Now, let me tell you what John is not saying here. He's not saying if a person gets disgruntled with Calvary Chapel and decides to go to First Baptist down the road, well, the reason they left Calvary Chapel is because they weren't really saved. Not necessarily. Sometimes people church hop, we see that in America. I'm not advocating that, and sometimes God calls people to different churches at different seasons of their life. So we're not saying if a person leaves your church or if you have a Christian that's struggling with spiritual laziness. There are Christians that do struggle at times, and they get out of fellowship, and they're genuinely saved, but they're being lazy spiritually. You don't want to automatically assume, well, the reason why they went out from us is they weren't genuinely saved. John here is dealing with people that make a profession of faith, but they're not truly possessors of the truth. They apostatized. In other words, They once hold to the Christian faith, but then they turn their back on it, and they want nothing to do with it. They're not genuine. It's like years ago, I decided to order some cologne. You know, I grew up in a home where my dad bought fragrances, and so I kind of inherited that trait from him. And so if you walk by me and you smell something pleasant, that's me, okay? Hopefully, that's a good thing. Hopefully, you're not going to smell a bad thing coming from me. But I decided I got 50 bucks from my mother-in-law one Christmas, and I said, well, I'm going to buy some Fahrenheit, and I love the smell of Fahrenheit. And so I went online, and I ordered this Fahrenheit, and when I got it, I noticed something was fishy. It looked like the bottle of Fahrenheit, and it had the label of Fahrenheit, but I noticed the label was a little bit twisted, and sure enough, when I sprayed it, it smelled like lemon juice. And I thought, you know what? This is not authentic. This is phony. This is fake. It looked like the real thing, but it wasn't genuine. And of course, there was nothing I can do about it. Could could have done about it at the time. I tried to actually contact uh, the business that was selling this, and they didn't respond. And of course, if you read all of the things, so I learned a valuable lesson: don't shop online for cologne. You know, go to TJ Maxx or whatever else. But you see, there are people that appear to be genuine, but they are really phony. In fact, if you want a modern-day example, and I can give you many of these, of people that once held to Christianity, but they now have turned their back on it, there's a man by the name of Carter Warren. You'll notice his picture up on the screen. Carter Warren was a pastor at a Baptist church in East Tennessee. He had pastored for 25 years there, and I got on the website to look at the church, and it's a pretty large church. I don't know if it was large when he was there. But anyway, Carter Warren has come out now, and he's basically said he's an atheist. And I watched the video as he's sharing with this association of atheists, and I'm scratching my head thinking to myself, man, you're leading all these people astray. And here is what he said. I'm going to put the quote up on the screen. He said, quote, between July 2008 and April 2009, I read over 60 books, listened to hundreds of hours of lectures and debates. I watched 25 documentaries and movies. I went through eight college-level courses from teaching company on philosophy, evolution, New Testament, world religions, biology, human behavior. I balanced it with Christian writers as well as non-believers. After his vigorous study... Warren asked himself if there was an all-knowing, all-powerful, loving, intervening God as revealed in Scripture. He concluded that there isn't. After all that study, I did not lose my faith, he said, as though it was something that regrettably slipped away. Rather, I chose to discard it because it no longer made sense, end quote. What do you do with people like this? Well, when someone embrace Christianity, and all of a sudden they say, I don't believe that anymore and I've renounced my faith completely, that person is a description of 1 John chapter 2. They went out from us because they were not of us. In other words, he was not genuinely saved. And that's why 1 John gives a series of tests to help you determine whether or not you're saved. If you read the whole epistle of 1 John. John gives a number of tests to help you evaluate yourself to see if you're a genuine Christian because a lot of people today profess to be saved, even in the American church. And listen, it's easy to hide in the American church because we have prosperity. Christianity is somewhat popular. People still go to church today. And so when you have that kind of milieu or environment, what it does is it breeds easy believism and false believers. And so rather than taking you through all the tests, how do I know if I'm a genuine believer? Here are two of them that John gives. Number one, have you admitted your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as your Lord and Savior? That's the first test you have to ask yourself. I didn't say, do you believe the facts in your mind? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? That's the key. And do you believe He's God's Son? Because that's what John says in John chapter 5, verse 1. He says, if you don't believe Jesus is the Christ, you cannot be saved. And so here's the question you got to ask yourself this morning. Do you know about Jesus Christ? Do you come to Calvary Chapel? Or have you personally said, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I admit my sin. I can't save myself. And I personally trust in you as God's son. And I ask you to forgive me of my sin. That's the first test. And then here's the second test that John gives. And again, I'm summarizing it. Do I see fruit in my life? Do I see the fruit of loving other people and obedience to God's commands? We're not gonna love people perfectly. We're not gonna obey God's commands perfectly. But John makes it very clear that if a person is genuinely saved, they're gonna see the fruit of love and they're gonna see the fruit of obedience in their life. John says, if you don't love the brethren... He says, you're still in the darkness. He says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. I mean, listen, that's the line of demarcation. John is black and white. There's no twilight with John. Here is how we know the children of God and the children of the devil. How? He says, he who does what is right is of God. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. Lifestyle. And so those are the two tests. Now listen, loving others and obeying God doesn't save me, but it does give evidence that I am saved, that I've truly trusted in Jesus Christ. And so how do we overcome false teachers and predators? Number one, you got to be on alert. And by the way, if you're not growing in your walk with God, if you're not walking in the Spirit, if you're not grounded in your faith pursuing God, you're not going to be alert to false teachers. You're going to get caught off guard. So be alert. The second thing is make sure you're a genuine believer. Make sure you're not just talking the talk. Make sure you're not outwardly identifying with the institutional church and you're not really saved. Because listen, just because people come to church doesn't mean they're genuine believers. That's why Jesus said on the day of judgment, he's gonna separate the wheat from the tare. The tares look just like the wheat. And they come to church, they raise their hands, they even give in the offering plate, and you'll be surprised that a number of them are not genuine believers. There's a third thing that you and I can do to avoid being hijacked by false teachers, and that is be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Notice, if you will, verse 20. He says, but you. Notice the contrast between the false teachers who apostatize, who walk away. He says it's different with you Christians in verse 20, but you have an anointing, that would be the Holy Spirit, from the Holy One, that would be God and Christ, and you all know The truth. And by the way, the Greek word here, know the truth, is not just information, it's intuition. He says you instinctively know the truth. Why? Because you have the resident teacher living on the inside of you who is the Holy Spirit. So he says you have the anointing. And notice what he says in verse 27. He says it again. As for you, the anointing, which is the Holy Spirit, which you receive from him, abides in you. He lives in us. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just that it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, what he's saying here is you and I have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. All Christians, when they trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they get the Holy Spirit to live on the inside of them. So listen carefully. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. They have the anointing. Now, I realize that some Christians may have greater anointing in their life because they're more yielded to God, and maybe they're calling, like Billy Graham. There's a certain anointing, I think, that comes on people because the nature of their calling. I don't disagree with that. But listen, you have the anointing. Now, where does that term come from? Well, in Old Testament days, they would take oil and they would anoint a prophet, priest, and a king with oil, and it was a way symbolically of setting them apart for that office. And John says, you don't have literal oil being poured on your head. You have the anointing, and an oil is a symbol for the Holy Spirit. He says, you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And this isn't just for a special class of people. This is for all Christians, and the reason I say that is because there are some within the charismatic movement that want to say, you know, the, the anointing is only for a certain class of Christians. In fact, there's a group in Bethel and a few other groups, Benny Hinn has done this, it's called grave sucking. You ever heard of it? Look at the picture up on the screen. Grave sucking is when you go to a saint that has died, and that particular saint was known to have a special anointing on them, like Catherine Kuhlman or some other well-known evangelist. And because they have the anointing, what you do is you lay on their grave, and as you pray, that anointing transfers from them to you. It's called grave sucking. Now, I can't think of something more bizarre and something more ridiculous, but you know, Christians are known to be weird and bizarre, are they not? And again, I understand their mentality. They want the Holy Spirit, but the answer is not going around grave sucking. And so we have the anointing. Now, what what does the anointing do? How does it help me against false teachers? Well, the Holy Spirit is like our internal lie detector. It alerts us when something is off. The Holy Spirit is our baloney meter. You know what a baloney meter is? When you hear something and you go, that's baloney, that is the Holy Spirit. That's what the baloney meter is. The Holy Spirit is an internal warning system that we all have that alerts us to the fact that something is off. You remember years ago, Avianca Airlines, back in the 80s? I don't know if you remember the plane crash of Avianca Airlines. Well, when they recovered the black box, here is what they discovered happened that led to the crash of this airline. As the plane was flying, there was an internal warning system that sounded off in the cockpit. And here is what the pilot heard. Pull up, pull up. And the pilot responded, shut up, gringo. He said, pull up, pull up, shut up, gringo. That's what the pilot said, and bam, the plane ran into a mountain. And you see, the Holy Spirit is that internal warning system that says, pull out, pull out, get away from that, wrong teaching. And you know what a lot of Christians do? Shut up, gringo. We suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. Now listen, just because you have the Holy Spirit, this does not eliminate study. Well, I have the Holy Spirit, so I don't have to study and be discerning. He's not saying that. You say, well, what does John mean when he says you have no need for human teachers? Some would use this to say, hey, listen, I don't need to go to church and sit under a pastor because I got the Holy Spirit living on the inside of me. Jesus said he's the Spirit of truth. The Spirit gives me the mind of Christ, which is all true, so therefore I don't need to sit under Human teachers that teach the word of God. No, John is not saying that. What John is saying to these people is, You have no need for these Gnostic teachers because what the teachers were telling the people to whom John wrote was basically they had an inside track to God. They had this esoteric knowledge. And if you were going to connect with God at their level, you had to listen to them. And John is saying, No. You have no need to listen to those Gnostic teachers. You have all the teaching you need through the apostles and through the Holy Spirit. By the way, if John was saying we don't need teachers, it would be contradicting what Paul said in Ephesians 4, that God gave teachers to the church. And furthermore, John is actually writing this epistle, and he's teaching the believers. It's self-contradictory. Why would John be teaching them? And he says, you have no need for teachers. John is not giving double talk here. He's saying you have no need for those Gnostic teachers. And so listen, you got to be in tune with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't eliminate study, but what it does mean is you have the anointing. It's available to all people. The Spirit lives in you, but you got to be controlled by the Holy Spirit and walk in the Spirit and be discerning. Now, if you disagree with a brother or sister in Christ over a non-essential doctrine, don't go, well, that person's a false teacher. The Holy Spirit's warned me that because we disagree over the rapture, they're a false teacher. No, that doesn't mean they're a false teacher. Christians can agree to disagree over non-core doctrines. When it comes to the core doctrines, that's what you got to listen for. And so let's review. What have we looked at? If you want to avoid being hijacked by false teachers, number one, you got to be on what? you got to be on guard. you got to be on alert. What's the second thing? What is it? You gotta be a genuine believer. Make sure you're saved. Because listen, only genuine believers are gonna overcome false teachers. And then, thirdly, you gotta be dependent on the Holy Spirit. There's a fourth principle that you and I must follow if we're gonna overcome false teachers, and that is this we must stand on the truth of God's word. We must stand on the truth of God's word. Notice, if you will, verse 21. He says, I have not written to you because you don't know the truth. He says, Look, I assume you know the truth. They were well taught. John had taught them, letters had been circulated to them. He says, Look, I'm not writing to you to let you know that you don't know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. In other words, I'm writing to affirm what you already know. Now, here's the question What does he mean when he says in verse 21, You know the truth? And he says it again at the end of verse 21, Because no lie is of the truth. What is the truth there? He's referring to apostolic doctrine whether it was given orally or whether it was in written form. Now, you and I are more blessed today. Why? Because we have the completed New Testament. They didn't have it in that day. Letters were being circulated, and it wasn't until the mid-100s that all the 27 books of the New Testament had come together. And so prior to that, letters were being circulated in the church, and they had tests to determine whether a letter was authentic whether it was really from the apostles or not, or a close associate of an apostle. Because here's what false teachers would do. They would write their Gnostic teachings, and they would ascribe an apostle's name to it to give it legitimacy, and they would spread it around the church. And so the early church had to come up with tests to determine whether or not a letter was authentic or not. And John says, whether it's been passed down to you orally, or whether it's been passed down to you in written form, you know the truth. And so what John is saying here is you measure everything by the truth, the Word of God. The Word of God is the plumb line. The Word of God is our benchmark. The Word of God is what we measure everything by. Look what he says in chapter 4 of 1 John, verses 4 through 6. He emphasizes the fact that apostolic teaching is our measuring stick. He says, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in the world... Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And in verse 5, they, that is the false teachers, are from the world. Now watch what he says here. Therefore, they speak as from the world. They they have a worldly perspective. And notice this. The world listens to Oprah Winfrey. That's not what the original says. But that's exactly what it's saying here. The world listens to them. But notice the contrast in verse 6. We, on the other hand, are from God. How do we know? He who knows God listens to what? Us. If you're from God, you're going to listen to me, the Apostle John, because I'm an apostle, I have apostolic authority, and Jesus commissioned me to give the truth. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. In other words, the early church measured something true or false by whether or not it measured up to apostolic teaching. Did it conform to the Word of God? Today we would say the 66 books of the Bible. Does it conform to Scripture? And so whatever you listen to on television, on the internet, the books you read, the podcasts you listen to, it has to be filtered through the grid of the Word of God. And by the way, that's why it is so important that you guys get into the Word of God, you study the Word of God, you're well taught here, But listen, a lot of Christians are not well taught. And you got to know truth. you got to know basic Bible doctrine. Now, here was the area that they were attacking in the early church. He gives an example in verse 22 when he tells them they need to know the truth and stand on the truth. Here is one area that they were attacking these false teachers. Notice, if you will, verse 22. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the what? The Christ, the anointed one. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. One of the areas that the false teachers were going against the truth was in the area of the person and work of Jesus Christ. There was a group of people there called Gnostics. And what the Gnostics basically did was they they attacked the person of Christ. And what he's saying here is this. If you don't accept Jesus as he's defined, you don't have the Father. The two are one. You can't say, well, I have a problem with Jesus, but not God the Father. It doesn't work that way. Because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. They are distinct in person, but yet they are one in essence. And so to reject the Son or to redefine Jesus is to reject the Father. That would be like you saying, you know what, Mike, we love you to death, but your three daughters, ah, we hate them. Listen, to reject my daughters indiscriminately would be to reject me. And that's exactly what he's saying here. Now, what were the Gnostics doing in that day? It's kind of an incipient form of Gnosticism. It was the beginning form of it. But here's what the Gnostics taught. You can see up on the screen, Gnosticism had two branches to it. The first branch was called docetic Gnosticism. He attacks that in chapter 4. And docetic Gnosticism, the Greek word dokeo, means to appear. Here's what they said. Jesus only appeared to have a body. He really wasn't human. He was like Casper the ghost. When he walked, he didn't leave footprints. He only appeared to have a body. And so John says in chapter 4, if anyone denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, they are liars. They are the Antichrist. Then you had another guy by the name of Serentius, it's called Serentian Gnosticism, and Serentius said this, the Christ Spirit came on the human Jesus at his baptism, because you guys know the story, where the Spirit came on Jesus, so Jesus was just a man, the Christ Spirit came on him at his baptism, and on the cross, the Christ Spirit left him, and Jesus died on the cross only as a man. And chapter 5 deals with that heresy. And so today, Satan loves to attack the person and work of Christ. If you look at all the cults and all the false religious systems, they either reject Christ or they redefine Jesus. And that's the big one. The cults and religious systems will say, okay, Jesus lived, but he was a good moral teacher, he was an enlightened guru, but they don't believe that he's fully God, fully man." And that's what Satan comes after, either to deny the humanity of Christ, which was prevalent in the first century, or to deny the deity of Jesus Christ, which is more prevalent today. And what John is saying, you cannot have the Father without the Son. If you reject the Son or you redefine the Son, you can't have the Father. The two work in tandem with one another. I was reading in um, Malaysia, where they just had this court battle, and it was over... The issue of whether or not, listen to this, Christians could call God Allah. And for years they had been referring to the Christian God as Allah. And the Muslims were up in an uproar because in Malaysia that's a huge population of Muslims but there's a large contingency of Christians there and they've been using this language. Some of the teachers there were actually, it was in their literature and their books. And so it went to court and they ruled in favor of the Christians that the Christians could call God Allah. What is the problem with that? The problem is God is not Allah. Because listen, the Muslims define God and Jesus different than Christians. Yes, the label does matter. Muslims reject this idea that God can have a son. That is blasphemy. God is one. He's singular. And so Christians should not be calling God Allah because Muslims define Jesus as simply a prophet. He's one prophet. And a long line of prophets, Muhammad being the greatest prophet of them all. And so we see where this gets redefined. And so John here goes on in verse 24, and he says this. As for you, and he's going to reaffirm here how you and I need to follow the truth. We need to stand on the word of God. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. What did he want to abide in them from the beginning? Apostolic doctrine. What they heard verbally and what was passed down to them in letter form, he says, listen, I want you to cling to that. I want you to hold to the word of God as the plumb line by which you measure everything. He says, if what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son, and you will abide in the Father. You won't drift, you will have the Son and the Father. The two are inseparably linked. Verse 25, this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. Why does he add that there? Well, maybe the Gnostics were attacking this idea of eternal life, and they were saying that they were the ones that were brokers of eternal life. They had that secret knowledge, and if you wanted eternal life, you had to go through them. And he's saying, no, Jesus promised eternal life, and if you abide in Jesus, you will have the eternal life. But don't listen to those Gnostics. And so today, when you listen to something, you got to know the Scripture, and you got to measure what you hear by the Bible. You say, Mike, I don't know the Bible. And I understand that. We all are at certain stages, but listen, there's no excuse for Christians not learning the Bible, getting acquainted with basic Bible doctrine. In addition to your Bible reading, here are three books that you need to get and you need to read them three times and you will know the Bible. Put it up on the screen. Here are the three books I recommend to you. I've read all three of these. They're good. Well, actually, I haven't read the middle one, but I know about it. Uh, Handbook of the Christian Faith, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. Actually, I did read the middle one. It's the one on the right. 30 Days to Understanding the Christian Life. Those three books right there, Not Taking the Place of Your Bible, In addition to the Bible, these three books, if you will read them two or three times, you will know the Scripture, and you'll be able to defend your faith. The first time you read it, it may be like drinking from a fire hose. But listen, it's very simple reading. It breaks it down, but again, I understand we're all at different levels. And so, learn the truth. I read this week about a gay pastor... He graduated from Moody Bible Institute, and here's what he said. Jesus was a racist, and he used Mark chapter 7 to basically say that when the Syrophoenician woman, who was a Gentile Greek, came to Jesus and she said, please heal my daughter, my daughter's demon-possessed, Jesus said, well, I'm not going to give to the dogs the bread that belongs to Israel. And what did she say? Yeah, but even the dogs eat from the what? The crumbs. And so he said, See, Jesus was a racist because he saw her as a Gentile and he called her a dog, and therefore he's a racist. And so she called him out on his racism, and Jesus repented of his racism and he healed his daughter, healed her daughter. Well, listen, anybody who knows the Bible and knows truth is going to go immediately, baloney detector, baloney detector, that's false. That's one is obvious. But there are other ones that are more subtle that you have to be careful of. Well, there's one other final principle that John gives here if you and I are going to overcome false teachers, and that is this, we must remember our accountability before God. We must remember our accountability before God. Notice, if you will, verse 28. Now, little children remain in him why why should i obey why should i remain in the word of god so that when he appears at his second coming we may have confidence and not draw back from him in shame at his coming if you know verse 29 that he is righteous you know that everyone who practices righteousness has been what born of him you know what john is saying You and I are accountable. You and I are accountable, and here's the deal. Do you want to be caught doing something when the rapture happens? Do you want to be in the middle of sexual sin when the rapture happens? Do you want to be in the middle of theft? Do you want to be in a backslidden state? Do you want to be known as a liar, a cheater, whatever it is, when Jesus Christ comes back? He says, listen, Jesus is righteous, And if you're one of His children, you bear His nature. He says, those who are born of God practice what? Righteousness. Why? Because we share in our Father's nature. And so he's saying, when Jesus Christ comes back, you don't want to be caught living in a lifestyle of sin. Now, none of us are perfect. But see, that's our accountability. You say, well, how does that help me against false teachers? Listen carefully. If I'm walking with the Lord... And I am seeking to be pure in my doctrine as much as possible. None of us has perfect doctrine. But if I'm seeking to be pure in my doctrine, and I'm seeking to be pure in my lifestyle, you know what's going to happen? That's going to insulate me against false teachers. But if I'm not doing the right thing, I can easily fall back into sin. And you know what? I don't want to be ashamed at his appearing. And you know what? When I was in high school, if Jesus Christ came back, I would have been ashamed. I would have been ashamed. When your kids were younger, do you remember when they turned two years old, you uh, gave them a cake to eat, and you put them in their high chair? You remember this? Don't you love it? What happens, the child starts eating the cake, and man, it gets all over them. Now, that happens to me even as an adult, because I love cake. I just stick my face in it. <laughs> you know what? You don't leave the child like that, do you? You accept your child, but all that stuff on them is not acceptable. And that's the thing. You're a child of God. Sometimes we get dirty. We get cake all over us, the cake of the world. And you know what happens? God wants to clean us up. But a lot of times we don't allow him to. And so what have we learned this morning? How do we overcome false teachers? Five ways. Number one, be alert to false teachers. Number two, be a genuine believer. Number three, be dependent on the Holy Spirit. Number four, stand on the truth of God's word. And number five, remember your accountability before God. God wants you and I to deal with sin, to be walking in righteousness, to walk in truth. We're not gonna be perfect, but God wants us to obey him.